What's up, guys? It's your boy, Johnny Bananas, and I'll be covering all the treachery, deceit, backstabbing, and murder from season two of The Traders U.S. on my podcast, Death, Taxes, and Bananas. I'll be joined all season by my fellow castmates to swap stories, provide all the behind-the-scenes antics, and sordid details from filming. So sally forth and join me for season two of The Traders every Saturday on the Ringer Reality TV podcast feed. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, You know what? It's Oscar season, you guys. And... I guess we should talk to some of these Oscar nominees, I guess, you know, there's a lot of them out there, but few have produced a body of work and a particular piece of work right now that is so human and interesting and touching. There's so many layers to it. It's an adult movie, you guys. We don't get these anymore. It's a throwback. It's contemporary. It's so good. You guys got to see it. It's called The Holdovers, and it's written and produced by Dave Hemmingson, Dave, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you, Larry. It is a real pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure, my friend. Dave and I worked uh, like a thousand years ago at the beginning of Blackish back on the Disney lot. The earth cooled and then we worked. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the earth cooled, yeah. But uh, what a great time that was and getting to know you and everything. And uh, you're so smart and just funny. We had so many great conversations back then just about story and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, it's so cool to see this type of thing happen, man. I mean, it's cool to happen any time in your career, but I feel like for you especially, happening right now is extra special. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, it's crazy because, as you know, I mean, you and I have known each other forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember when you acted on Traffic Light. We we, we begged you to come on Traffic Light. And did it. I rewatched that episode recently. It's a really good episode. That's right. Traffic Light. That's right. Yes. 14 years ago. But I mean, you know, we go back further than that. But yeah, you know, I've been in TV for like 28 years. And and uh, I've had the, you know, great pleasure and honor of working with amazing showrunners. You know, yes. like you, like Kenya, like Yvette, Lee Bowser, like tons of great people. And I've, I've run some of my own shows, created some of my own shows too. Mm-hmm. But this right now, is extraordinary because I'm in my fifties and, you know, mm. you know, I feel like to be allowed, I don't think, I think everything happens. Everything kind of shows up right on time. If you're lucky, like I'm very lucky in my whole yeah. life. And um, just to be able to do this now, when I feel like I'm ready and able to tell this story, I don't think I could have written this movie. I wrote it like four years ago, but I don't think I could have written it until this chapter of my life. Because I don't think I was equipped yeah. as a writer or as a person to tell the story the way I told it. I think it's a function of getting older, a little more mature, and obviously mm-hmm. immensely lucky to be allowed to be allowed yeah. to do this. To be, you know, but um, I think the maturation process it brought me brought me to a certain point that allowed me to to try to write to, to write write this. You know, yeah, and not just because I'm a fan of yours, but I love 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 this movie. 
David, and you have to know that it this is one of those films that it's so good on repeated viewings too. Like some films you go, oh, okay, I got it. And you have no desire to watch it. And this is different. It gets better on repeated viewings, you know, because there's so many layers to it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to write when you're writing multi-stories that all have interesting arcs to them and that type of thing. And it's particular time, even stylistically, it's interesting so when you watch it, you like it. But then when you keep watching, you go, oh, I missed that. You know, it's like, oh, that's interesting. It's the, there's so many different layers. I really appreciate it a lot. Oh, thank you. You know, and Larry, I know you and I share, uh, we share several enthusiasms, but one yes. of is the Beatles. Um, that's right. You're a huge Beatles fan. And quite honestly, when I was working on it, um, I just had this little, this little post-it right here that says, be Paul McCartney. Because ah! it was sort of like, what would what would you do if you were trying to do something that you're pouring your whole heart and soul and whatever the mm. ability you had into? And those layers, the idea of like, okay, um, let's layer as much as possible. Like, you know, right. not to say that this is like Sergeant Pepper, but it's sort of like, how do you create something that's really rich? And it's, I think, of course, of writing the picture, which took about 18 months, it was sort of like, okay, lay, lay this track down. Let's lay, let's lay the rhythm track down. The rhythm track is kind of the emotional mm-hmm. reality of the, of the movie. Okay. That has to be there for all three characters materially. That's right. What are the comedy pieces? Well, that's, you know, you and I, you know, kind of came up as comedy writers, that rhythm of three, like, that's see, right. See the cognac in the, in the first scene. That's right. Reinforce it when he's stalking through the, through the hallways at night. So it's almost a comedic set mm. reinforcement punchline rhythm that I try to put into the emotional thing, but I just kept, you know, for, for perhaps I'm torturing the metaphor and, and I, I'm deservedly should be, should be yelled at for this, but it's like layering tracks, you know? No, you're absolutely right. And you're, you're a talented musician as well, you know, and it all makes sense for me. It's, I guess comedy is always that, you know, it's, yeah, here's, let me, let me tell people what this movie is too. It's also, it looks like slice of life. And many times when people write slice of life, the narrative can be very loose, you know, and it can seem very just spontaneous or whatever, but like the way you just described it you have an actual structure that's in place Absolutely. that you're relying on in different form and you rely on certain, uh, I'll call it rhythms. Rhythms is a good way to put it. You know, where I've, okay, I've had enough of this rhythm. I've got to have more of this rhythm. There's got to be a balance here. We've got some characters we're balancing out here. Who needs to come forward here during this time? And it's, writing this has got, it's, there's a lot of that going on too as well, right? Absolutely. Larry. You just put your finger on it. I mean, look, that's exactly how I approached it. I'm like, there's an emotional truth to it. The kind of the emotional yes. truth to the movie with Paul and Marion Angus. I wanted them, I wanted these three sort of very different, very broken people to find each other and kind of, you know, come together. But um, right now, but the point, the point is sort of like, I, I knew that I ha- I couldn't just do that. I couldn't just say, okay, right. this story in the in the kind of bold, boldest, boldest possible terms. Here's here's their emotional arc. Right, right, right. I knew that I had to work with allegory, and, and I had to like kind of toggle between the comedy and the emotion because I feel like that's how I feel like that's how at least for me it's the only way I can get the message through. If I I sort of and the emotional truth through is to sort of like constantly leaven it with some some humor to make it to make it fun and to make it sort of ideally engaging. You know, I feel like. Um, I just wanted to have fun with this movie. I wanted people to have fun with this movie, but I wanted them to, to feel something too. And I felt like the more I sort of, you know, worked at that and layered that, um, layered the components one on top of the other, the more that it, it might reward repeat viewing. 
because, you know, it, it just, I want it to be as rich as possible. So if that's coming through, then I'm really, really happy. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of the craft of, but before we get into that, let's just describe the movie basically for people that haven't seen it called The Holdovers, of course, if I didn't mention the title. And it's about, uh, well, go ahead. I'll let you describe it. Well, it's about, um, first of all, I guess the logic would be like, there's this kind of uh, odiferous, kind of smelly. <laughs> Literally. Ocularly uh, <laughs> challenged, but he's got kind of a, a, a wonky eye. Uh, yeah. he's got his palm sweat. Uh, he's kind of the least likely romantic hero you'd ever want to encounter, but he's this 50 something professor at this prep school mm-hmm. and he's pretty hardcore about the way he approaches academics. He's right. Embraces, uh, Marcus Aurelius and the whole stoic philosophy. He's a classics professor at this, yeah. this kind of upscale prep school in 1970, where, when the movie's set and he's stuck mm-hmm. holding over, he's stuck taking care of these kids. And, and the holdover for those it's the time during at a prep school because kids are sent away to prep schools. Some kids can't go home for Christmas, so they don't have any place to go. So they're held over at the school, I guess, right? Precisely right. Mm-hmm. And so the holdovers, he's there with these kids. Yeah. Um, one of whom is this kid, Angus Tully, who's kind of the least popular kid in the school, or in his class, rather. He's, he's incredibly smart, but he tends to lie and cheat and steal. And then the third person is the woman who runs the, the food program there. Um, and her name is Mary, and she's a black woman from um, Boston, from Roxbury specifically. Uh, mm-hmm. Her son had attended um, Barton Academy, which is the, uh, the school that you know, we're, we're talking about. And they didn't have sufficient resources to send him to Swarthmore where he wanted to go. So like my dad, he enlisted uh, in in the military. My dad enlisted when he was like 15, but when he graduated from Barton, he was top of his class. He enlisted uh, and was killed immediately in Vietnam. Uh, mm. She's still working at the school, um, kind of running the cafeteria. And um, Curtis is kind of now being honored for his sacrifice to his country, but he's the only person in his class who actually went to Vietnam, which statistically, in terms of uh, the number of kids who would go from a private school, it was funny because in the 40s, in the in the teens when World War One was happening, you mm-hmm. had huge numbers of these kids from these prep schools were enlisting. Yeah. By the time the Vietnam War came out, they all had student deferments and none yeah. of them were going. So it was only the kids who were scholarship kids and poor kids who couldn't get a deferment because they couldn't afford, you know, to go to college. Those were the ones who went and fought and died. And um, you know, I did a lot of research into that and discovered the preponderance of the battlefield casualties, 23% were African American were black men. Yeah. It's it's sort of consistent with the historical Ac, you know, historically accurate portrait of what was going on then that her son would have gone and died, but she's still at the school. Um, and she's holding over in her own way because she kind of is deeply, um, she's grieving her son terribly, but she's sort of still in this moment where she can't quite let go of his ghost almost. And she's still at the school, mm-hmm. um, which is the last place she saw him. So it's the three of them really, because those other four kids, I won't ruin the movie, but the other four kids, five mm-hmm. kids total, they end up leaving. So it's just uh, Paul, which, who is, you know, Paul Giamatti. Yeah, um, um, Angus, who's Dominic Sessa, and uh, Mary, who's the incredible Davine Joy Randolph playing Mary, uh, are stuck together, and it becomes this little three-person family that kind of finds yeah. each other. Is that accurate? Do you think that's a fairly? Yeah, absolutely. No, you told it very well. You know. Um, now, what's interesting is because I'm like, well, wait a minute, Dave's younger than me. You know, when I'm watching, it, <laughs> and I'm like, a little bit, just a little bit, yeah. Oh, well, I'm the old fogey in this. And I'm like, he didn't go to prep school in 1970. That's crazy. You know, he was too young. And I'm like, so, and I know that this is, of course, it's brilliantly observed. So you went to prep school, I guess, but what was, what was your experience about going there? 
that was different from this? And what, what were some of the things that you put out for, the, for this? Because you originally wrote this as a television pilot, right? Well, what happened was there was actually, a, a, there was a TV pilot that Alexander um, happened across. I'll, I'll give you the, 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 the short version of what happened. I had written this thing. I'd been in, in deals and, and working on various shows for years. And Absolutely. I decided yeah. that I kind of wanted to, I wanted to do something that was, you know, uniquely my own. I'm just going to give David some props right now. Okay. David is one of those writers where he, the studios don't want to let him just be a free agent. <laughs> you know, they want to lock him up because they know something good's coming. So he's one of those guys that if he doesn't have something of his own, you know, he's going to be at a deal somewhere, you know, and because they're placing their bets in the, these, uh, there are writers who are like this in the business that sometimes you guys don't hear about these things. You hear about these deals, but the truth is when you're somebody like Dave, you're just talented, you know, and people want to make sure that the thing that you do, you know, they want to have a part in. So anyhow, many times, uh, some things don't come out of it. Some things do, but just giving you some props as to what some of your careers look like. Yeah. That's very, very kind of you. Yeah. I've been really lucky. Like I said, i working on a lot of great shows and, and, but I'd been, I'd kind of thought to myself, you know, as Larry can, I think, speak to sometimes, you know, I was having dinner, for example, with a, a somebody who runs a studio the other day, just t- catching up. And, you know, the idea of like, okay, you have to say everything at the, in this way at this time on this show, because we have a finite amount of time and to produce this and, and, uh, people have a finite of time, you know, in their lives to watch it. So make sure everything's super clear, crystal clear you know, yeah. exhibition sort of like pushing that. And that happens a lot, especially yeah. television. Now there's some exceptions, absolutely. And some great shows even sort of fall into this mold a little bit, but sometimes you kind of want to do your own thing. And absolutely. I was so incredibly lucky to to be employed for a while so that I, I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just take some time off. I'll take a flyer. I'll write this pilot. And I wrote this pilot called Stonehaven, which was set in 1980, which is when I was there at a project. Right. Um, and um, my agent, uh, now manager, but then agent who has the, I think the best taste and the worst bedside manner ah. in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. the, the pilot Stonehaven, which is about this kid who goes to the school or his dad is teaching, which is what happened to me. My parents divorced when I was very young. It was very acrimonious. We were broke. My mom was a mm-hmm. nurse and single mom and, you know, at like quarter four in the morning to go to work, to be home in time to, you know, uh, make me dinner. And, and your dad worked at the school. My dad was actually a merchant seaman who'd gone to, um, who ran away from home when he was 15, never had a high wow. school mama. Uh, ended up um, being in the in the um, military for 12 years, for a dozen years, all during World War II, because he joined up uh, on, and was sailing on those Liberty ships. They were they were sailing back and forth to Britain with armaments to supply, like the invasion of of uh, Omaha Beach, that kind of thing. He started that stayed in there all the way through the Korean War. Ended up with a 10th grade education, going to Yale on the GI Bill because my aunt sort of applied for him and he got in. So he ended up as a teacher, but you know never graduated. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. He wrote. My folks split up. He ended up teaching at this school called the Watkinson School, where I ended up going. But my mom is sort of like, "Well, you don't really know your dad because of the sacrimonious divorce." And um, I was getting the shit kicked out of me in public school because I was a weird bookish kid. So back in the day, <laughs> Larry, Larry can testify to this. Back in the day, um, the concept of bullying, which is a, a, a terrible thing, obviously. Yeah. But it really wasn't scrutinized that much when I was a kid. It just happened. You're absolutely right. And usually, it's smart kids got beaten up by big kids. 
That's usually what happened. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much what happened to me. So I, I got teased all the time, yeah, because I wore glasses. They called they called me the professor. That was my nickname. Yeah, I wore glasses too. <laughs> but luckily, I was good in sports, so that staved it off. Because even though I was nerdy, I mean, I was into magic. I was into science. You know, I got good grades. People call me teacher's pet. But then, if I beat their butt on the basketball court, that evened it out. You know, yeah, I did not. I was not the Renaissance man that you are. Did not. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to throw that in. I was Sorry. not. I was not given. So I just got my ass kicked. But you had music. It was just wasn't developed. But no long story short, I ended up at this prep school because my mom was like, okay, let's save him. Let's save him several beatings and let's put him close. Mm -hmm. So so the pilot was kind of around that. And yeah, my, my, my manager, it was from the point of view of the kid, the pilot like that. And and, um, my manager, then agent read it. And like I said, he has the, uh, the best taste and the worst bedside manner in Los Angeles. He reads it and he goes, wow, this is really nice. It's very evocative. It's very emotional. Um, there's some really interesting nuance in here, some comedy, there's some drama. This is a really nice, really nice piece of writing, David. I was like, oh, mm. so much. He goes, it's completely useless. I mean, no one will ever buy it. It'll never get made into a TV show. So, you know, you could be, you could have just wasted your time, but that's fine. You know? And so he, I sort of thought, okay, well, this deeply emotional wow. memory play that I wrote, you know, about my life is, it was, was a waste of time. But what I didn't know, and this is why I'm still with him, is that as opposed to just tossing it in a drawer, he gave it to a guy named Niels Mueller who had gone to film school with Alexander Payne. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'm just, I went off and did a show called Whiskey Cavalier in, in, uh, in just a little show. Yeah. It's a show. Yeah. But I, I, I did it. I went off and did it. And I was like, uh, I, I'd for, not really forgotten about it because it was a, very close to my heart, you know, that pilot. Sure. But I didn't realize that it ended up with Alexander Payne. And I get this phone call. Uh, I'm driving back from, I don't know, somewhere. I was really tired and I got this phone call and, you know, and I, I answered it in, in the car. And uh, the voice on the line says, David Hemmingson, Alexander Payne. I thought it was somebody fucking with me. I thought it was a friend of mine who right. called me up once and said to me, you know, David Hemmingson, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And I believed him. This is about <laughs> five years ago. And I immediately breathlessly was sort of like, oh, Mr. Coppola, I, I, what an honor to talk to you about a project. And I was like, I, I would be honored to. And he was like, <laughs> fuck you. You're an idiot. Why would Coppola call you? So wrong. It's so wrong. We have fun. Uh, comedy writers. And, uh, I've been set up once and I was sort of like, okay, well, this is probably bullshit. So I started to sort of tee up a, a choice bit of profanity of fire at the phone. Then I looked down and I saw the Omaha area code and I'm mm. like, oh, you know, is this actually Alexander Payne? He said, yeah, yeah. Last time I checked. Uh, and he said he, he read the pilot and really, he liked it a lot. And I immediately, you know, we're TV writers, Larry, you know, you, you, the dream is born immediately in your head. You're like, oh my God, he's going to make my pilot. Right, 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 right. This is great. And he's going to direct my pilot. I'm on board with that. I didn't think he did TV. And he said, yeah. I don't want to direct your pilot. I don't do TV. I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. Um, and then he said, but I have this idea for this kind of ocularly challenged odiferous professor stuck at this prep school with these kids, one of whom his mother is on her honeymoon. He said, that's the log line. He said, um, hmm. I see that, you know, you, you can do this. You know, this world. Would you write this movie for me? Which to me was like Charlie Bucket and, you know, Willy Wonka when you get the golden ticket, you know? So I immediately said, yes. He said, don't you want to talk about terms and conditions? I was like, no. <laughs> right, exactly. Nope, I'm on board. Enough said. We'll yeah, figure like, that whatever, out. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be. I just want to write for you, you know? Just interrupt for a second. You are absolutely right. for Because many people who want to do what you're doing and what we're doing and all that stuff. These are little nuggets that I try to press on people. Opportunity, when you sense opportunity, don't worry about the other stuff. Other stuff takes care of itself. But opportunities, especially for expression or to do something that pushes you in a different place that allows you to, you know, have a certain type of collaboration, that should lead the conversation and everything else is secondary. Doesn't matter. Who cares how much money you make? Who cares what blah, 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 whatever. 
that's the first thing. So good for you, man. It's so great to do that. Yeah. So, so he sort of said, you know, great. And then the threshold conversation was, okay, um, what do you think? He said, I want to do it in kind of that humanist, uh, 1970s style. You know, we mentioned Paul Ashby very early, who was a brilliant director. Absolutely. And I, ironically, I had just seen a documentary over at the New Art Theater on the corner of Santa Monica and Sautel called Hal. Uh, and it was a Hal Ashby documentary. And Alexander Payne and Judd Apatow and a bunch of other people were in it, you know? Oh. Um, and, and the weirdest thing, we're kind of praising Ashby. And he's like, okay, so clearly he's an Ashby fan. I love Hal Ashby. You know, made, I think, five of the greatest movies of the latter half of the 20th century from 1970 to 1980. Um, so I was like, yeah. I mean, starting, I think, this is doing real quick. Like, The Landlord, for sure. Um, Shampoo, I think, was Hal Ashby. Shampoo, absolutely. Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude, yeah. Ugh. The Last Detail, yeah. which is incredible, which is one of my yeah. favorites of all time. And then Being There. There's five yeah. right there. All brilliant. All yeah. brilliant films. So he's like, I wanted to make a humanist film, like an Ashby film. And he said, but quick question. Um, it's a period piece. Uh, I said, great. He said, your piece was a period piece, but set in 1980. I said, yeah. I said, I want to go earlier because I feel like that culture was more kind of calcified then. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. He said, 1958 or 1970? Um, and I immediately said 1970. And he said, why? And I said, well, a couple of reasons. Um, first of which is I feel like at the time it was about 2018, 2018 had more and had, has more in common, had more in common with 1970 than it did with 1958. Interesting. In 2018, we saw, you know, some terrible, terrible racial injustice going on. We had huge economic inequality. I mean, you know, 2018 was a, was a fraught period, just as we are now in a very fraught period, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, foremost in my mind, what was going on in terms of, of what was happening to American society in the, and the terrible choices we were facing and, and some of the awful things that were happening. And um, I said, 1958 didn't really have that. That was more sort of, you know, uh, it was more kind of like happy days time. You know, it didn't feel like, you know, it felt like the social pressures wouldn't be as prominent. Yeah. And the allegory wouldn't be as sharp. Yeah. Sputin- Sputnik was the biggest thing for 1958. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Sputnik and then Elvis uh, filming Elvis from the, from the waist down was the biggest issue. You know, and they, him going off to the war or whatever. Exactly. I felt like 1970 was much better. And then I said, plus I think Peter Weir owns 1958 and there was a long pause. Um, And I thought to myself, did I just fuck this up? Oh, because did you sense that he wanted to do 58, but he was, he was trying to sense kind of feel you a little bit, but I also couldn't tell because what I was basically saying, and and it was a long pause. And then I'm like, Oh my God. And he goes, no, you're right. You mean dead poet society? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I don't want to go up against Peter Weir. I said, great. So we don't want to tell a story in the same world that of dead poet society, because not only did I not think it was sort of as relevant or as interesting right now, you know, in 1970, but also like, you know, then you're up against John Keating, you're up against Robin Williams, you're up against that sort of institutional memory of, of this mm-hmm. time, you know, uh, and, and that Peter Weir had done so brilliantly. So we both wanted to stake out our own territory with the movies. No right. one had done a prep school movie in 1970, you know, so we thought, okay, prep school movie has been done in 1958. That's the Nobody's done 1970. It's more socially relevant. And if you're aping Hal Ashby, if that's your source, why go 1958? Exactly. Exactly. So we both agreed upon uh, on that. We're going to, we're going to like really lean into the Ashby at all. Uh, and do that. And then the second conversation was Paul Giamatti. You know, it was sort of like, mm. he said, how do you think, how do you feel about Paul Giamatti? And I'm like, I fucking love Paul Giamatti. So he had him in his, in, he already had him in mind, of course, from working with him before. Yeah. He worked, that's who he was worked with him on sideways and he really wanted to work with him again. That was very much kind of like, I, would you write this for Paul? I said, I would be honored. Cause it turns out Paul and I were born in the same hospital. We're from the same hometown. 
our wow. parents knew each other in college, wow. which, you know, we found out, isn't that crazy? So it's sort of like, it was almost kind of like destiny, kind of kismet that this should happen, you know, that, that, that he should mention Paul and Paul should get involved. And clearly, you know, like ever since sideways, Alexander wanted to do it. So I kind of tailor, I cut the suit for Paul. Uh, I always, uh, he was always in my mind when I was writing it pretty much from mm -hmm. second conversation I had with AP. When you have someone like Paul, when you say that, like, what are the, like, there's a different image in your head at first about that character. Although you guys, I don't know if there was a character like that in your pilot that was that specific. Not at all. The pilot and the movie are completely different. The only thing, the mm -hmm. only thing that they share is kind of an emotional matrix, like that feeling between that, that three person family kind of a, mm -hmm. in a very different context with different characters in the pilot. But I kind of took those feelings and I try to find a place for them in the movie. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking of focusing on Paul Giamatti mm -hmm. as the fulcrum for this movie, like, where are you going to for that? You know, like when you're thinking about his journey and that type of thing, what are you pulling from? It's partly your observed experience of that. But what's the other part of it? Because uh, there's a huge part of it that, of course, you couldn't have experienced you know, from that character. Yeah. It's kind of like, you, you rightly point out that there's some some kind of felt and lived experience in that character. Mm -hmm. Principally, I should say the character is based upon um, a man, I'll show you a picture of him in a second, uh, a guy named Earl Cahale who raised me uh, after my folks split. Like I said, my parents divorced very acrimoniously as kind of was, there was a big divorce epidemic in the late 60s. My parents, same time, same time for and my parents. It was parents. tonic, yeah. I think, for a lot of us kids. It was, it was a big thing because it was new yeah. phenomenon in the culture and, and there are more interventions for kids too now when this happens you know people know yeah, no one was safe from it that's where the explosion of the 70s latchkey kids came out of that whole thing you know i was one of those kids you were one of those kids yeah absolutely but yeah. now they sort of like there's there's things in place at school and at home where like oh we're gonna get divorced well maybe you should talk to a therapist or <laughs> you know parents working together exactly. real nicely <laughs> we're co-parenting co-parenting what the fuck is that <laughs> i was consciously co-parenting it's like that fuck it was like, hey, I'm going. Like, when are we going to see dad again? <laughs> I think I know my father loved me, but it was just a really fraught time. And it was, Ooh. there was no money around. And it was sort of like, no. you know, he was, you know, going to sea uh, in the summers because he still had to ship out in order to make ends meet as a teacher. So, you know, um, all that was going on. Um, but my uncle Earl stepped in and he was this really interesting character, man. He was like, mm. he was, um, he'd fought on Saipan in World War II. Um, and that was some very brutal fighting. Um, and like my father yeah. in the Merchant Marine at 15, he was older than my dad by about five or six years. And he fought on Saipan and, and seen some kind of terrible things. I think a lot of those guys, a lot of vets, period, carry a lot of PTSD with them. And I think he sort of mm -hmm. managed it in a different way. But he was this guy who just um, decided, looked at me, this sort of squishy, bespectacled, beat up kid. And was sort of like, uh, I am not going to let you slide into kind of emotional uh, oblivion. Uh, I'm going to kind of parent you uh, and fill this vacuum. He was an intervention in your life. True. Intervention in my life. He saved my life mm -hmm. in many respects. I loved wow. him, still do, endlessly, mm -hmm. because he sort of didn't let me feel sorry for myself. He's like, yeah, I know it's situation. Yeah. I know you're broke. I know your mother has to work all the time. Um, drop and give me 20, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All that stuff of like, you know, wake up kid is daylight in a swamp. Or for most folks, life is like a hen has ladder, short and shitty. Those are lines from the movie. Or for most people, sex is 99% sure. friction and 1% goodwill. All that <laughs> stuff, you know, all that stuff was just poured into my ear. That was drawn in my yeah. brain when I was a kid. So, you know, you talk about, I didn't, I did not necessarily live that experience, but I, I knew him and I, and I knew what he was capable of, but I also knew that, you know, he was sort of kind of bespectacled, kind of jug handle ears, sort of 
Right. Bellied, but you know, he was no nobody's idea of a romantic hero. He was like ten times cooler. He was laying down. He like spoke eight languages. He ended up working as the head of the press office at the UN. So you know, he brought me to New York and he turned me on to all this cool cosmopolitan. She brought me to museums and stuff, but also took me out. You know, um, we used to hunt because that's how we put meat in the freezer when I was a kid. So we did all these things together, and he he laid all this, dropped all this wisdom on me, all this science on me, all this philosophy on me, which was awesome. You know, as a kid and just as a really young kid. So he was sort of the, the prototype. And, and in terms of it kind of inventing the rest of it, the arc of the arc of the character, I thought to myself, initially when I was writing, I was breaking. It was about this broken person trying to find some love in his life. And then you can see that. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll write about that. And so sort of the kid will be sort mm-hmm. of his Sancho Panza, right? He'll kind of mm-hmm. help him get, he'll, you know, get this thing squared away. Right. And Alexander read, I wrote a few kind of like short stories in that vein. And Alexander read them. And he's like, He's so brilliant and he's such a great writer, Alexander. And he's so Midwestern though. You know, he reads, he reads stuff and he'd be like, Oh, this is interesting. I like, it's kind of nuanced and, and, uh, it's, uh, an interesting arc and a take on this man's kind of repressed or, or fractured uh, romantic life. And, and it's, it's really a nicely, nicely wrought, well wrought. And I was like, thank you guys. We're not going to do any of this. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this question about process. Did you, when you say you wrote a short story, do you mean you wrote something in prose form about the character? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I would kind of almost like write a, like, almost like, you know, and he hates this word, but Larry, you and I have veteran TV writers, a pitch document almost, you know? Oh, okay, got it, got it, Like, got like it. here's a story, here's a short story, you know, about a man who does that. Got thing. it. And so, you know, after one or two iterations where I was banging my head against the wall with my director, who, you know, is, is when it comes to your life as a writer, it's so different than television. And television, Larry, is, as showrunners, we, we control, we're the gatekeepers, we decide what happens, you know? Exactly. We're the sort of, we steer the boat. And in, in movies, it's the opposite thing. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the director's master time, space, and dimension, and they decide what happens. So I quickly figured out, like, oh, if I don't get this past him, this movie's never going to get made. Uh. And I was like, okay. He, he, he said the kid's more important because the kid's got time. The kid's got runway. The kid's got a future. Interesting. In his 50s, this, kid, this man's life is sort of not ending, but there's a chapter in which, you know, it's never going to get that much better for him necessarily, but he can actually save someone. I was like, yeah, he can. And it goes to the whole teacher thing. And that was huge. That was one of the biggest pivot points for me. Cause I'm like, okay, it's going to be about this kid who is, you know, broken and, and kind of in jeopardy. Um, and that's great. But then I thought to myself, we really have to take him on a journey. We'll take Paul on a journey. And I said, I really need some maternal energy in this film too. I need someone to anchor this emotionally with them and, and to have her own journey. And I kept thinking about my mom, you know, mm. the emotional elements of Mary comes directly from my mom, who was this nurse who worked as a nurse for 42 years, you know, in the ICU and the CCU and the ACU, just rotated through the toughest positions and always took the shittiest shifts so she could be home in time to cook for me. She'd get up four to four in the morning. And I thought to myself, you know, I loved her so much and I lost her fairly young. And, and I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to have this maternal energy in this movie, I want it to be kind of true to the time, true to the place, but true to my emotional reality. And so I thought to myself, okay, what if I flipped it as a thought experiment? What if I didn't lose her and it destroyed me? What if she lost me and it destroyed her? Mm. And so I said, okay, I want this woman to have lost, lost her son. I think it's, you know, I thought, okay, scholarship kids, I could see that. Okay. And I looked around at my past and I was like, what's the truth? What's the historical truth of the situation? That is the women who I knew, you know, in these, both growing up, because my mom was, Mm -hmm. my uncle's. Um, her brothers were janitors at Wesleyan uh, and at the courthouse in Middletown, Connecticut. So I grew up around working people. I grew up around working people. Right. Okay. This is going to be a working person. Um, she's 
if she's working at this prep school in 1970 in Barton, Massachusetts, which is a fictional town, let's say Deerfield, Mass, she would be probably black or Eastern European. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, she's a black woman. She's from Massachusetts. She takes this job. Like my mother took this job, worked you know, as a nurse to kind of support me. And yep. She's going to enroll him in this school because she's working there. Cause that's, she's got the master plan. Yes. <laughs> the master plan. She's going mm-hmm. to take this job. Her son's going to get an amazing education. Mm-hmm. Curtis did excel. He was top of his classes. But then, because she does not have the money, and I also looked into the 1970 bill in terms of financial aid, like if you didn't have the money, there weren't that many scholarships floating around, really. And right. it's quite credible that, you know, you would go, okay, well, I don't have the money, so I'm going to enlist. Absolutely. Thousand percent. Right? Absolutely. That's historically accurate. Yep. So he would enlist. Um, and because he was a young black man, and because it was criminal what was happening in terms of the inequality and in the way that the troops were treated, 23% battlefield casualties were young black men. They were pushed to the front. So it seemed also historically accurate to me that he would go and he would die in Vietnam, you know? Um, And then she would be left kind of completely bereft. So her journey was going to have to be, and she has the most monumental loss of anyone in the entire film. Absolutely. So how do you overcome that? Like, what does that look like? And that was a, that was the biggest challenge there in the entire, right in the entire picture was like, I knew I wanted to have it because it was true and it was emotionally resonant. Um, and it would allow me to explore my grief and my love for my mother, but also in an important context. But I knew since that wasn't my lived experience, I had to give some space to the actor. And that's where I think Devine just took off with it. I, I kind of tried to structure it like I'm leaving these moments of silence. I'm leaving these scenes for her to bring her experience as a black woman into that, into the context of this film, you know? It's so smart, you know, because I have to give you props once again. You know, we live in a world where it says, who gets to write for black characters or black people or they're... What's a story that someone should write or whatever? But this part, both the what's written and the performance, because you're right, they're they're uh, they're both additive to something that's different from just the writing or the performance. Those things together, you know, give Alexander credit too. They all add out add up to something that's its own being, and it's both intelligent. It's quiet, but it's authentic. It's full. Yeah. It's not showy. But man, let me tell you something, because as I tell people, I'm a witness. I'm not a researcher. I was there at that time. You know, the authenticity to that, it's not contemporary, but it's it's relevant. It's a it's a it's a very truthful observation without infusing a contemporary attitude about it, which keeps it in that 70s type of thing in a way that isn't cloying. It's not condescending. It's not. Uh, deifying, you know, because sometimes those characters can be deified. It's the saintly black woman, you know, type of thing, you know. So I know I'm saying a lot here, but that character, that can be a fraught character. I was conscious of the fact that I wanted it to be real and to be honest and to be just true. And that's why I'm so incredibly grateful to Devon, you know, because she took that and, and, you know, understood exactly. I was like, I wanted to leave this you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to leave this for her because that was, a, you know, it had to be left for her because she had to bring her experience to it and, and make it as real as possible. Because, you know, I couldn't speak to all of it. I could just speak to the emotional matrix of it. And and I wanted to leave room for authenticity. I wanted to leave room for truth and mm-hmm. emotion coming from her. And she just, yeah. I hope and pray that she gets the, the big award because she deserves it. She's, she's already won some awards, right? Yeah, um, she won the Golden Globe. She won the Golden Globe. nominated yeah. for the BAFTA. She's been on the yeah. Academy Award. She's been nominated for the NAACP Award. She's been nominated for... Oh my God, like just a ton of stuff. I mean, she's a brilliant actor. I mean, brilliant. Yeah, she's so, great. You know, in constrict back to your original question, in constructing the screenplay, I was just like, okay, I need these three full narratives. 
Yes. They need to make sure that somehow that they inter- intertwine and that all these people who are very different with very different issues and, and very different tragedies riding behind their lives, mm-hmm. they all come together and find a way to heal each other. And that was the central mm-hmm. challenge of the movie, but it was also the central delight of the movie as a writer. Yeah. Once you hit certain junctures in the story where they're testing each other and they're pushing each other and they're pushing their preconceptions about each other. And mm-hmm. once they start, yeah. once those things start to break down and they're, and their feelings start to come out and they start to sort of like very tentatively, very haltingly kind of start taking care of each other, you know, um, then, then sort of the, the, the friendship kind of blossoms between them. And, and then the, the, the care and the concern blossoms between them. And that was the true joy of the movie. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, you know, a lot of long nights of me looking at it going like, I want this to have integrity, but I want it to be beautiful. And I want it to be a love story. This film is a love story, Larry. Yeah. And, and I just wanted it to be, you know, as real as possible in that regard, you know? Yeah. I went to Catholic school, come from a broken family and all that kind of stuff. My home life was a mess. And I always went, but you know, when I was at school, I never felt like I fit in, even though I had the ability to fit in in many different things because of how I, I approach things. But I told people, I always felt like I was a, a family reunion, but I'm not in the family. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's how I feel like. And this movie really evoked that in an interesting way and in how you just have to create family wherever you are many times. You know, it's part of what you, we both have done, even in showbiz, how we create micro families all the time. And you've created a micro family here which is nice to see two people in different roles playing different parts of that family. And so, I mean, it's uh, not to give anything away, but uh, the kid just when they're having dinner, he's never had this before. <laughs> and it's something most people would look at that and go, what, what are you talking about? This white kid, this white boy's had dinner before like this, you know, but you know, everybody has a different story, you know, not everybody goes on the road that you think they came down on, you know, and the things you get to appreciate when you're in a kind of a forced family become, you know, that becomes a, this whole interesting thing, you know, because he didn't, he hadn't, I mean, in my, in my mind, he sort of had always been kind of shunted off. And we find out later in the film that there's some real tragedy in his backstory um, yeah. with his dad. And, you know, he's kind of this from, from this kind of emotionally cauterized environment and a lot of sadness and difficulty in there. And, you know, I think it's easy for us to, to sort of look at people and kind of go, okay, I'm signing off. This is who you are because I'm looking at you in your situation. This is what it is. But what they all discover from each other is they really maybe never took the time to inquire as to each other's situations. And, and even if they did, they didn't fully understand it. And and just having the three of them, which is why I want to get rid of those other kids, just having the three of them interacting together at Christmas, you know, it was no accident that it was like almost, you know, this mother, father, child thing at Christmas, I was like, oh, you know, these three people, it's not really a Christmas story per se, but in this context to me was an interesting kind of emotional touchstone or a little thing to put in there. Like, you know, the Holy family kind of thing almost, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and examining that, like, what does the love look like between these people? And like, what is it, mm-hmm. what does it look like? Um, and that really involves, and this is the challenge of the movie, but the one that I, again, incredibly difficult, but also really kind of lovely thing to, to approach is how do I, how do I, Push them together. And that's where the comedy writer thing comes in, Larry. It's like, okay, what kind of incident can I, right, what kind of fun right. can I have? And what I discovered writing it is between Angus and Paul, and this is something you, you probably knew as a writer, but I discovered it, is if you put people on the same side of a lie or the same side of a shameful secret, um, then you have a license to do exposition with them that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have otherwise. Because if you and I, like there's a scene in the movie where 
uh, Angus has to go to the hospital and, you know, it's on Paul's watch that he injured himself. And if it comes out that this happened, then, then Paul will lose his job immediately. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. And he's incredibly pissed at the kid initially. It's yeah. like, you, you're going to get me fired. You, you know? Um, and then the nurse shows up and Angus just lies and says, mm-hmm. listen, can we just pay cash? Do we really have to fill out the yeah. forms? Too much of a trail. Don't want to leave a trail behind. <laughs> In real time, the kid is saving, he's saving the professor by saying, you know, but he says, you know, my dad, pointing to Paul, my dad took me skating over at Squans Pond on right. the ice and I fell. And, you know, they had a really difficult divorce, uh, personal history. You don't, you don't want her dragging you back into court again, do you, dad? As opposed to Paul, uh, calling bullshit, Paul just kind of like sits there. And now he's complicit with the kid in this lie, right. which gives them the opportunity to start telling the truth to each other. Because if you share that secret, you 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 and me against the world, Larry, yeah. then we're, we might actually tell each other things that we wouldn't ordinarily tell each other because we're not mm-hmm. bound up together in this in this larger kind of situation. Yeah. I would say it's like having an affair. I've never had one, but it's like kind of like that. If you're if you're having an affair with somebody, you know, you got to keep you got to hide that. But those people in that situation yeah. are going to have pointed conversations about things that they can't tell anybody else because they share the yeah. secret. And so, really, the use of kind of like lies and then later on the kid lies uh, or he paul lies to someone and the kid joins in and that drives a revelation about paul's backstory so each time they're creating these little fictions for the world it allows them to tell the truth to each other yeah i love that you know it's uh you say to get exposition out which is it serves so many different purposes you know practically it serves that purpose but you're right there's a bigger purpose you know of bonding the characters and intimacy sometimes i look at things from social perspective and then, you know, dramatic purpose and that kind of thing too. Um, and kind of putting them together. But like, to me, one of the issues of our day, to me, this is just my observation, but I think is the issue of intimate connection. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that the young generation is having a problem, which is why many young people aren't having as much sex they're inundated with social media, which gives you a false type of connection. It's an illusion. You know, you have, you know, hundreds of friends on Facebook, but maybe one friend in you know, real life. Intimate connection is an issue. And many times people want to be so safe in their interactions, whereas true intimacy comes like this is an expression. Um, sometimes you have to have a breakdown before you can have a breakthrough, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. And part of the journey of the movie, some of these things, you know, because you're lying or whatever, but those are like breakdowns before there's a breakthrough. You know, there's there's a breakdown in something. In that case, it's a formality is broken down, you know, and now there's a breakthrough of a connection, you know, and how people actually come together and start communicating as humans, you know, and that type of thing. It's a it's an interesting uh, that's kind of my observation, too, of of why your film was also contemporary because it's about that issue, even though it's set in the seventies or whatever. I, that's a brilliant insight. I want to take that insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's how I, that's how story occurs to me in those terms. They don't occur literally, mm-hmm. you know, when a film affects me because that's how it's affecting me, but not the circumstances of prep school and all those things. I'm like, yeah, but the fact that this black mom's black child was a sacrificial lamb in the class system. Yep. You know, I mean, I'm emotional thinking about that. And that's not just a black issue. That's poor white kids or poor this, that this class system set this up. And that's that, 
you're part of, she's part of this family. Yep. She's at the family reunion, but not in the family, exactly. you know, exactly that issues in there. And there's so much of that in this movie, you know, um, especially with uh, Dominique who plays the, yeah, yeah. the part. He, he, he exudes so much of that angst of that period, but also feeling alienated and wanting. He wants connection so bad in this. You know, you really are on his side during it. Well, I think you just hit upon everything that I was going for, so thank you for that. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't say it. That's bullshit, Larry. I was just going for this. Oh, just a Christmas movie. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's just a Christmas movie. <laughs> this black lady was the cook, Larry. There's nothing else to it. She had a job. Uh, yeah. uh, no, it's actually, you know, it's funny because you talk about that situation. Like I was saying, I was uh, too young to go to Vietnam, but I saw my friends, um, the people I grew up with, the people my mom worked with, I saw their older sons and their, uh, my, my friend's uncles going out to Vietnam and those were poor kids and those were black kids. And those were like, that was the way kind of that went down then. And I remember seeing that, you know, so for me, it was sort of like, uh, you know, part of the memory play, but the, the issue of the issue of connection and the issue of the contemporary nature of, or allegorical nature of the story, as it relates to, to this alienation that people are feeling right now, mm-hmm. pretty much on my mind. And one of the great things about doing a period piece is, you know, no cell phones, you know? Right. Exactly. No screens, Things like you know? that. No, no comp- Inability to reach somebody was a big issue. Exactly. Like a place apart in the film. And like, you know, that's, yeah. of course you can reach them now. You just call the cell or mm-hmm. somebody else's cell or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, you know, I, we always used to say, I remember, I think you might, I might've talked about it. It was like the idea that the, that the cell phone was the worst thing that ever happened to comedy, just as an aside, because so many of the great comedies, if you, you know, cause so much about, about comedies, about misconnections, and when you, yes. you can't get a connection, I couldn't pay for it. I didn't have a quarter, you know? Like, <laughs> pay phone's not a problem anymore. Well, you know? farce, farce is completely built on miscommunication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. sort of like doing a period piece allows you not to have, you know, not to have email, not to have cell phones. And and that was kind of great because it forced, it allowed me to keep these three people isolated um, in this world. Mm-hmm. Right. Three alienated people in a world that just contains them. They have nowhere else to turn but to themselves. Yeah. What's that going to look like? And I think that was one of the virtues of having it set in 1970, you know? Um, but, but the alienation component of it is absolutely, you know, the principal theme that I was leaning into alienation, turning into love was the thing that I was trying to uh, get to. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment. So it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. 
See website for details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. I'll go to the technical side of it a little bit because I was a big fan of that too. I don't know if you had any conversations with Alexander Bell, but even in the beginning, the way it starts off, it looks like the 70s. I even caught, because my eye catches the Roman numerals. Yeah, thank you. When movies happen, it's a, I'm like, copyright 1971, right? Because I see the XX, you know, L, the LXXI, and I'm like, I immediately know that 70s, you know? You're like one of two people who picked up on that, oh, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that's the kind of thing I catch up in. Even things stylistically, like the the zoom out from a medium shot to a extremely wide shot is very 70s. You know, the types of transitions in montages, you know, uh, the use of the music, the way that it comes in and the style of the music, you know, it's almost Simon and Garfunkel. A lot of it is Mike Nichols to me too. Like the graduate, the, the trail that the graduate left in its way that it told that story oh, just influenced the 70s in a big way too. So I was even thinking of Mike Nichols also in this. And of course, um, Robert Altman, Robert Altman plays a huge part in this and his quiet observation of behavior and that kind of stuff. And he used a lot of improvisation in his work and everything. So technically I'm just like, ah, chef's kiss, you know, (laughs) as I'm watching so many of these, so many of the shots just took me back to that era, but it wasn't a satire, didn't parody it. It used it in a contemporary way to, to tell them a story that didn't feel old. Thank, thank you for that lovely observation. I mean, the truth of the matter is that, like, that was very much on Alexander's mind. That that's, that was his starting point yeah. creatively. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Like, I want to make a 70s movie, but not like right. a movie that's sort of like, you know, we're going to do kind of a wink, wink, a 70s movie. But he said, I want it to feel like someone opened up this vault door and found this reel. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, who made this movie? You know, and like, Where did this come exactly. from? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> By the way, my friend, that was a huge challenge for me because yes. when he said that, and keep in mind, like, you know, I, I didn't go to film school, you know? Um, right. I, I'm kind of self-taught. So I was like, yeah, me too. Well, I'm kind of fucked now because I signed up for this. This is, again, threshold. <laughs> well, I'm like, you know, he starts talking to me about shit. I'm like, you know, yeah, we're going to do the 70s thing and it's going to be very evocative and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm like, oh, fantastic. I'm all in. Hang up the phone. I'm like, I'm totally fucked. You know, but I'm like, how am I going to talk to this guy? I, you know, because he's, you know, it's one of these great experiences in my life too, where I love the guy's work before I ever met him. And now he's called me and wants to right. play for him. I'm like, Jesus, this yeah. is like a, a li- chance of a lifetime. I'll never, never come again, especially if I fuck it up. Imposter syndrome right on the shoulders there. Like for days, man, for days, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm fucked. So here is, let me, for all, all you, all the writers out there and for mm-hmm. anybody who, who, you know, loves movies, let me just advocate. If you're in LA, there's a place called Cinephile and it's a video store. It's, it's called, it's called, it calls itself the last video store. And it's on the corner of Sawtown, Santa Monica, and they have 30,000 titles. Oh, wow. And, you know, Thank God they saved TCM because Turner Classic Movies is a place you can see a lot of great old stuff. But you know, That's right. it's it's a it's a reservoir. You know, I mean, it's 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 a library of of culture. And the Criterion Channel also, um, if you're a supporter of films, subscribe to it. Give them money. Don't worry about it. Even if you don't watch a lot, just give them money. We want this to keep going. Correct. Thank you for, for that shout out. Because that's mm-hmm. exactly. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is really mm-hmm. incredibly vital for us. Because a lot of stuff shows up on streaming and then disappears mm-hmm. and you never see it again. And it's gone. But if you go to Cinephile, so I went to Cinephile and I'm like, 
these two guys, Greg and JP, they're great. They run the place. And I sort of said, listen, here's the thing. And I've been going there for years. I said, um, I'm writing this mo- movie for Alexander Penn. They're like, get the fuck out. Nah. Uh, and he's like, yeah. And I said, I said, but it's a seventies movie. And I kind of have some knowledge, but not enough. And Larry, for what you just said, you said exactly what they said to me. Cause you know, you're a brilliant guy and you understand this. They were like, okay, well, Alpen for sure. You know, uh, you know, certainly Ashby, if that's what we're talking about. So there's the Altman, there's the Ashby, there's the John Avelson, there's the George Lucas. It's like, you know, filmmakers, black filmmakers from the seventies, like women, like everything, just get the entire seventies over, just get it all. And spent, yep. you know, about a year going to film school on Alexander's back because I would just watch all these movies to try to, to try to be able to talk to him, you know, because he would say stuff like, you know, and the, be working on a Mary scene and he'd be like, we need some sort of strong emotional through line, but I don't want it stated. I want it implied. You mm-hmm. need to lean more into that. How can we examine this? Or, and he would say to me like, yeah. um, breaking point. And I'd be like, yeah, there was a breaking point in the second. He goes, no, 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 no. 1950, Michael Curtiz's last studio picture starring John Garfield. There's, there's a kind of subsidiary emotional arc in there that anyway, click. And I'd be like, hello, hello. You know? And I realized that like, unless I saw that picture, I couldn't understand what he was talking about. And it really wasn't for like story or character things. It was for tone and for theme. That's right. One got breaking point. I stuck it in. It's the third remake of, uh, to have and have not the Hemingway. And by the way, Michael Curtiz, a, Pretty much a forgotten director. Who directed Casablanca? Oh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. How is Michael Curtiz not talked about? Exactly. Michael Curtiz, <laughs> and he's a forgotten director, but he did all this stuff during the studio system. You know, so yes. I go and right. stick it in the in the DVD player, and I remember sitting there with a beer, just going like, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to be looking for. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's like, and he's like, I, you know, he's Alexander's so bright, but I just don't. And then I don't know. And then all of a sudden, like sixty percent of the picture, I'm like, oh my god, there it is. And it wasn't. Anything you can even describe, it was a feeling that kind of stealthed into the movie. Mm. And so I ended up watching all these 70s movies because the way things were approached and the way you were allowed to live in scenes Larry, is, right. is, is gone now. It's different. Yep. Different. Right. So I had to rewire my brain that way. The uh, conversation, you know, we didn't mention Coppola. People think Godfather, but if you want Godfather isn't really a 70s movie in that sense. It's its own thing. I'll argue. Precisely. I think I think it's its own thing, but the conversation certainly mm-hmm. is, and the conversation has all of these elements in it too. Exactly, you know, um, you know the yeah. fact that like at one point, Hackman tears apart his entire like, late late in the movie, mm-hmm. tears apart his entire apartment looking for the wire, because that's how his brain is 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 lined up. But if you stay in those scenes or, or in the love scenes, the very mm-hmm. sparse love scenes in the conversation where it's just really real, the guy's dressed, woman yeah. sort of still in bed, he clearly is emotionally cauterized and has all. Yeah. And, you know, later on, he kind of tips over and tears his apartment apart. But that kind of thing, you just don't see it in films now. So stay right. you're 100% right about The Godfather, which is epic. It, I think it has an awareness of its, uh, awareness of its own, like, um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say epicness, but it's almost sort of, it's got this fable-like quality of The Godfather. And I think that Puzo and Coppola knew what they were doing. They were doing this sort of almost allegorical family story. So it's kind of separate and apart from the 70s movies. You're 100% right, I think, in, in that regard. It's its own thing. It's it. Ironically, the Godfather's not. This this is going to sound heretical to people, but it's really not an influential film in terms of style. In terms of film style, there you can't look to other films and go, "Well, that's a cousin of the Godfather." Whereas, like I said, The Graduate, even Bonnie and Clyde, some of those movies, you know, some of uh, you know a lot of the films that we're talking about. Uh, really influenced storytelling a little bit more in style and all that kind of stuff. You know, here's a, when I did Bernie Mac show, 
you know, I was working with Ken Quapis, who, of course, is another film school person. I didn't go to film school, you know. And I went back and I knew that we needed a certain type of cutting style that was different. And it had to feel real. There was a verisimilitude, you know, that we needed. And so I went back and watched the French New Wave stuff, Goddard and Truffaut and all that stuff. Because I, because like you, I needed, I wanted to fill my brain with a certain style and a certain, because uh, that had a verisimilitude that felt different at the time. You know, the rhythms are different and I wanted to shake up the rhythm. That was another thing. Rhythm was a huge thing. And I intentionally did that on the show. There was, I remember there was one scene where Bernie hears something, he hears the kid crying and he didn't know that was going to happen. So he leaves, but our storytelling didn't know that was going to happen. So we stay there a little longer with in an empty frame. Man, you just hear the, yeah. He might be back. We don't know, you know, <laughs> and then we cut to something a little too soon before he gets there. And then when we come back, we're there just a beat before he gets there. And all that was an intentional way to shake up rhythm just from watching Breathless, you know, 400 Blows was one of those. 400 Blows was... I can't believe you're saying yeah. this because that... For I, a TV show. I did this for I, a TV right. show. And that, yeah. I mean, who's doing... I mean, like, but that that goes to your intellectual curiosity and your, your kind of brilliance and as a showrunner and a, and a writer. But, I mean, honestly, the 400 Blows, the reason I got so animated there is because I was just about to say, that's where I went next. It was like, I got to yeah. Truffaut, I saw 400 Blows, which is the story of this, yeah. this kid who, it's like mm-hmm. a, you know... Honestly, like somebody like Ken Loach or Mike Lee, mm-hmm. a movie like that now, and have have done movies. I'm working with the filmmaker Ramin Barani on a, on a picture we just are financing right now, which is very much in that kind of like social realist, you yeah. know. But mm-hmm. Truffaut specifically, the idea of this guy, this kid, sort of not um, not fitting in, and the fact that he sees his mother at some point having an affair, and she sees him, and it's yeah. like it's so fraught and it was 1958 yeah. and it was like a fucking lightning bolt yeah. at the time. <laughs> like, what is this? Exactly. But I love the fact that you, that you use that. Cause I was absolutely gravitating toward that. And also, um, bicycle thieves, which is an Italian New York yeah. picture, which is just hard right. about, you know, post-war Italy and, a, and this mm. poor Italian guy who has his bicycle stolen and he can't provide for his family. So from an emotional standpoint and the other movie, Larry, was and you say Godard was a band apart it's for mm. the rhythm and I'm so it's so wonderful you mentioned brothers because like that's exactly like you watch Godard and it's like and again we're not film school guys like I did it on my yeah, own yeah. Yeah. it's like found right. it I watched it I just remember like you know kind of feeling like this tremendous sense of exhilaration in my fifties I'm like I'm like oh my god this is a whole world you know that I didn't know about yeah. that I get to learn about. It was just thrilling. It was thrilling to, to do it. Has this changed you now fundamentally, do you think, as a storyteller? And like, even when you think of television, David, like, do you think, I can't go back now. I want to do things that are more, I'm using all of these ways to tell stories now. Like Larry Wilmore, I, I feel like I want to, you know, what you did, <laughs> what you did with Bernie Mac show is kind of like what I would like to do now, which is sort of, if I go back to TV, to find ways of using that rhythm because, um, I, I you know, I feel like, you know, again, having these conversations with, with people, sometimes studio people, and they're like, well, you know, you got to get it all in there and you got to tell everybody everything because you only got 22 minutes or 18 minutes. Now, fuck that shit. I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. I believe that people are, are emotional creatures and that their, their radar is up and out, especially now, you know, for mm-hmm. things that feel genuine and, and for, for That's emotional right. experiences and, and emotional authenticity. Uh, my advice to people who, especially younger writers are kind of vulnerable sometimes to note taking and that type of stuff. Anytime someone tells you that they want you to tell more resist with all your energy 
and try your best to tell less, you know, and show more, (laughs) show more, tell less, you know, don't let them trick you. That is not correct. It is an incorrect note. I don't care what their feeling is behind it. You should never your first instinct. Yeah. There are times when you need to tell more, but overall show more, tell less. Exactly correct. And I think that an example of that would be you can you can start to tell things, but only if you show things first. Like if you show that connection mm-hmm. between the kid and you show the lie and you show, you know, them complicit right. in this thing, uh, it kicks the door open for intimacy. And then you can tell. But the telling feels legitimate because you're not just saying, you know, funny right. my father is in a mental institute. And like, you know, you're not down with right. people. You're letting them you're inviting them in through an emotional conduit, through a door. And then you're letting them experience it with the characters in an organic way that doesn't feel like you're just jamming expo down people's throats, you know? Um, and that's the problem with most television, in my opinion, you know? I know. Well, it's the instincts of the people who are giving notes. So I don't want to trash those people. <laughs> There's some good people. But my advice, resist it with all your... <laughs> with I'm, all your I'm <laughs> carrying that flag with you, my friend. I agree 100%. David, this is such an exciting time for you. Do you are, now, are you interested in the directing part of it or... Does now we've talked a little bit about how producing works in television. The good thing about sometimes writing and producing in television, it kind of exercises some of that directing then because you get to <laughs> yeah. guide vision. So that's a dirty little secret yeah, in television, you, you know. But uh, in terms, are you looking to maybe do that in film or that type of thing, or that's not really on the on the horizon? I'll confess to my cowardice. I I um I have my DGA card. I've directed a few episodes of TV. Um, sure, and um. My friend Dean Pariso, who directed a great movie called Galaxy Quest. I love Dean. He's a really good friend. Brilliant. Uh, directed a pilot, directed a pilot, of my, pilot of mine some years ago, and we've been friends ever since. And um, and he said to me, uh, directing is like being pecked to death by chickens. Uh, <laughs> and and I and I kind of agree. The films I directed, and Larry, I'm sure you've encountered this. Ninety percent of it is thankless. Yes. Ninety percent of directing is completely thankless. You get up, you, yeah. you stay up all night thinking about your, oh, shot, your shot list, and then you get there, and it's like people start coming up to you, and they're lovely people, and they're heads of the department. You've got to validate them because they're great, but they're like, "Here are seventeen. We need yeah. a watch. The character looks at a watch. Here are seventeen watches." You know, and you're like, uh, "I don't know. Okay, this one." But everybody kind of wants something from you, um, and it's a it's a huge privilege to be able to direct. But for me, mm-hmm. perhaps it's emblematic of my laziness. I just want to sit in a room uh, and kind of try to figure out the world. Um, and then putting it on its feet, I think, is such an awesome responsibility. The kind of courage it takes to be a great director, the kind of organizational principles that you have to apply. Um, I, I I love all of it. I've done it. Um, it. It's just so exhausting, I think, to me. Yeah, it can be physically exhausting. To me, the fun is what you just said, putting the puzzle together. Now, sometimes that's what the director does. And then to my mind, okay, I would need to direct if that's what I'm doing is putting the puzzle together. But if you're able to be in the position of putting the puzzle together, that's the most exciting part for for me personally. And in television, we get to do that a lot as writers, which is good. Television is a writer's medium and film is a director's medium. um, Fundamentally, I think. Uh, So, I mean, for for me, directing... You know, it's I've, I've been really blessed in working with Alexander, who I think is brilliant, and I'm Ramin, who mm-hmm. made great films like Man Pushcart and White Tiger and and Goodbye Solo. I just finished, I co-wrote a movie with him um, that he's directing um, that Nick Cage is attached to, which is kind of exciting. And um, and Alexander and I are writing a movie together right now. We're co-writing a movie. We're writing a western set in 1986. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's Interesting departure yeah. for both of us. But directing to me is a huge privilege. It's an awesome responsibility. 
I'm this weird cat who just like wants to sit in front of the keyboard and just write. And where where's comedy in all of this? Are you kind of in the dramedy world, so to speak, or in the just straight up drama world right now? Are you still thinking in comic terms? What, I, am, what, I think I think what, comedy to me is that? never going to go away because it's I think and I, I won't speak for you, but I'd be interested in your opinion on this. Like it's the mm-hmm. lens through which I see everything. And I think that goes back to my childhood because comedy kind of saved me. Like when I discovered yeah. Richard Pryor and Steve Martin and George Carlin mm-hmm. and Monty Python um, I, on, on albums, on LPs, which I am. Yep. But uh, that sort mm-hmm. of form, it's the prism through which I see things. Like some people see it through the prism of religion or science. I kind of see through things through the prism of comedy, like the absurdity mm-hmm. of life. And, and I'm always looking for what's the unexpected kind of humorous element of this thing because i think that kind of inoculated me from some of the sadness i had mm-hmm. so it's, yeah. i think the comedic viewpoint is always wired into me i've tried writing straight drama you know i i find that when i try to write things like i object my baby you know <laughs> like like that stuff doesn't <laughs> doesn't tend to work for me you know because i kind of i i have to find a way to put some some of the human comedy in there so i don't think comedy is ever going to go away but i would say i guess dramedy is the thing i'm most interested in um because mm-hmm. as much as something like barry um, as a comedy or I'm a Virgo as a comedy or, you know, any of these sort of short shows that combine drama and comedy and magic realism and all this stuff mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. um, you know, these flashbacks, you look at Barry, it's got heightened slapstick moments. It's got dream sequences, you know, uh, other stuff has got, you know, people who are giants and, you know, it's like that sort of thing to me really turns me on because it allows you to play with drama and comedy and, you know, magic realism and, and the fabric of, of storytelling. Like we go back to, you know, whether it's, uh, we talked about Godard, we talked about Truffaut. Let's talk about Terry Gilliam for a second, you know, yeah, who is, sure. I guess, Brazil. I guess as a comedy director. Yeah, exactly. Brazil or one of my mm-hmm. favorite movies, the Fisher King. Yeah. Robert Williams. Yeah. That's kind of magic realism slash comedy, but also deeply dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I look at filmmakers like that and writers like that and I go kind of, that's what I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. I never want to give up. I mean, I just love writing a joke. I remember time times in a room with you where it's just fun to get on the runs. And, yeah, of course. Yeah. And there's, there's just something endorphin releasing about that that makes you feel good. And so I, I it's yeah. ever going to go. And it's also kind of how I view life. So I don't think that's ever going to go away that, that sort of impulse to tip toward harder comedy. And one of the great things about working with Alexander was he's not afraid of slapstick. He's not afraid of people running down the hallway, you know, uh, and <laughs> like throwing a football, like that kind of thing. Um, you yeah. see it in the descendants when the way George Clooney runs around the corner. You sure. So yeah. that almost silent film thing that he does. Yeah. You, you always the silent film, like it's something I don't think that's hard comedy. And I don't think it'll ever go away from me. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. You said so many things I agree with, including who I was influenced by too. You know, I'm glad you said Steve Martin. He's not talked about that much, but uh, I went down a rabbit hole maybe a year or so ago, you know, uh, was it during the strike? Now I can't remember because I have no concept of time. But I went down the Saturday Night Live rabbit hole of the um, first episodes, the first yeah. season. Because I remember watching that um, as a kid. I was just starting high school at that time. And, you know, back then nobody had a VCR or whatever. So I didn't catch all of those episodes, but I saw a lot of them and they really influenced me at the time. And to go back now and watch them all, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of see you know, things develop that I know is going to be a thing, but they don't know yet, you know, that type of thing. But what was a revel, and some things have not aged so well, and some things are interesting to see how they've aged kind of quite well. Like, it, it, when you watch it now, two of the standouts are Lorraine Newman and Garrett Morris, who weren't necessarily 
back then the standouts, but Lorraine Newman is brilliant in it. You know, it's like, how is she not appreciated more at yeah. the time? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but that is to say, it was interesting watching Steve Martin's first performance because he wasn't a blazing star yet, you know, and he was so funny, David. And it, it made me emotional because as you said, it made me, he was so important to me and I didn't realize how important he was till I saw him again. And it made me think of the teenage Larry who like, oh my God, this is pure comedy I'm saying right now. Yeah. Like it's pure, you know, it's just in your face and just so funny, you know. And to see the audience not know he was going to be Steve Martin yeah. and, you know, they loved him, but they weren't crazy about him yet. They were going to, they had no idea what was to come, that they were going to be crazy about this guy pretty soon. I remember, you. I'm sure you remember, he was yeah. filling fucking 30,000 seat. He was the first one to do that type of thing. Rockstar comedian. He did to comedy what the Beatles did, you know, the fill arenas yeah, and, and, and in stuff. The same you know? way, in, in a strange way, in the same way, because it was intelligence and emotion, and it was pushing you on access. Yeah. I mean, what he did with this, like, his whole, you know, uh, Let's Get Small, the first album, was he's inviting you into this persona. Yeah. Is, and it's like an idiot savant. Like You were in on it, and you were you in know, on it. Yeah, But it was like a persona that no one had ever attempted before, and it was specifically right. Steve, and it had these weird flights of absurdist fancy yeah. banjo and everything. It was the more accessible version of Albert Brooks. Yes. You know, because Albert Brooks was more intellectual. He was really smart, but it was really for the higher minded set to really appreciate Albert Brooks, you know, like Mort Saul before him, you know? Yeah, because Albert Brooks did a lot of absurdist things and he made he did a joke on a joke and made fun of things. But Steve Martin's persona was more accessible, you know, but I say that just to point out how. You know, for me, like I think of my entryway is comedy too. you know, into things and and you know, I go from there or now I like, like, I wouldn't want to generate a completely dramatic story. I agree with you, but I like entering into a dramatic story <laughs> from a comedic standpoint, awesome. you know, yeah. and, and interfering in it comedically and that type of thing, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. I love interfering with it. That's exactly, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I, I, I love it because life is so fraught, you know, this tears, yeah. it's so fraught. Uh, and it's so difficult for all of us. I know. And, we can't find if we can't find the comedy to sort of like interfere with the tragedy, then life is just fucked, you know. There you go, David Hemmingson. Let the comedy interfere with the tragedy in your life. There you go. That's all you need in your life. Let some comedy interfere with the tragedy, guys. That's all you need. Dave, it's so great speaking with you, man. I could we could speak forever, but I know you're busy. And um congrats so much on this run. I you know me, I, how happy I am for you. I am so happy. I know you well, and I know that this is you this is hundred percent uncut genuine larry i'm talking to so i mean i i, yeah. I really appreciate that i feel it and i and I, I, love, I love you and it's been too long we have seen we haven't seen each other in person in too long so hopefully we can do that soon let's we should meet up at cinephile that'd be fun let's meet up at cinephile and then let's get a couple movies yeah. and then uh go get a beer and talk about it. <laughs> i know but guys don't just see holdover once trust me on this trust me you know i'm your friend you know i will not give you bad recommendations several viewings of this it just gets better and it is just so completely fulfilling, especially the performances. Paul Giamatti is so wonderful in this. And Divine Joy Randolph, she deserves every award she's getting. It's so good. You know, the, the cast is just excellent. Congratulations, Dave, on such an achievement. We'll be rooting for you at the Oscars, my friend. Thank you very much. And it's, again, I'm going to email you because I need to take you out. We need to catch up face to face. 
I can't wait. Dave Hemmings and you guys, the holdovers at a theater or a streamer near you. <laughs>